That kind of looks like Hurricane Dana, doesn't it? It kind of went through. The, uh, the preschool doesn't have a lid anymore, so the roof is all off of it. It's uh, getting ready. And, and the other one, you know, it's actually, if you get looking at it, it's an organized pile of trash. I mean, there's, there's, there's uh, obviously, you know, junk in one section, but another section has stuff they have harvested to be recycled. So beams and metal in another section and, and uh, piping, etc. So they, they have put a whole lot more work in it than it looks just if you look at that and say, oh, wow, it's all a pile of trash. But um, a lot of work has gone into getting us to this point, and we'll just keep moving forward on it. I also meant to tell you, you know, I'm going to double the number of grandchildren I have. It's supposed to be today. Um, so number two is supposed to be born today sometime. So we'll see. We'll keep you posted. Of course, it's supposed to have been happening every day for about a month now, I've thought, but <laughs> we'll see. We're in this study in the book of James, and I'd like you to turn there with me. James chapter 5, the last chapter in James. We are... Um, in this little study. And, uh, you know, James was the pastor of the very first church after Jesus' uh, resurrection from the dead. And this little letter, which has been divided into five chapters, we've called it a handbook for an active faith. I mean, James has been challenging his church, uh, which has been scattered because of persecution, to get out there, get involved, and live their faith and walk their talk. And uh, he's kind of like a coach who's passionate. And uh, he's passionate about his players doing their very best. And so he's in their face. This isn't like when he's talking to the newspaper, which, by the way, I did talk to the newspaper and they're taking pictures, so I got to get my better side. Is it? I don't know which one it is, but they're both very average. Um, uh, but... Um, James is, is talking to his players, people like us, in private, and so he's getting after them. If, you're talking to the, if he were talking to the reporters, of course, he would be bragging on them. Now that he's talking to them privately, saying, you need to be doing this and this and this and this and this. He's saying, live your faith, walk your talk. And he has some sharp talk today about money, so relax, because we already took the offering, right? All right, we got that taken care of, and I'm not going to try to get you to give any more to the church today. But you know, when I was a kid, my, my dad was big on you work in the morning, and then you have lunch, and then there's always rest time. And during the rest time, uh, he would let the kids, after a while, we could get up and play. And so uh, we would get up and play Monopoly. And it didn't take too many weeks of Monopoly before my sister Trinka quit because she always lost. And um, we were just playing for fun, and it's just more fun when you win, but uh, Ty, Tina, and Tad would play every day, and so we said, we're going to play by the rules. And so we had the rules memorized, all of us, and um, we decided that we would give everybody more cash to start the game because you always seem to run out before you get all those hotels built. And we'd play, and we'd swap properties, and we would throw the dice, and we would negotiate, and we'd sometimes beg and plead and, and, and for mercy and cajole each other and argue and, uh, you know, the merits of our case. But at the end of the game, all the money goes back in the box. Nobody who won kept the Monopoly money in their pocket and said, let me take you to the store this afternoon. I had such a great afternoon winning in Monopoly. Let me go treat you. It was Monopoly money, right? And it was only good when you were playing Monopoly. It was useless outside the game. But how we treated each other during the game wasn't forgotten. That stayed with us. Whether we'd been kind or harsh, that was not overlooked. The game was over, but the review would remain with us. Okay, so we had a certain time frame that we would play every day, and then it was over. Let me ask, when your life is over, 
Will you hear God say, well done for how you played the game of Monopoly here on this earth? How you played the game of life? How you played the game of finances? I mean, my goal is to help you get ready for that moment when you're standing before God by yourself and you wait to hear, and you hope to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So I want you to know what the Bible says about money because it will be on the final exam. If you ever took a class and a teacher said something once, you think, oh, that's interesting. Twice, you go, ooh, that, I better note that. If they said it 10 times, you'd know that's going to be on the final. I better know about that. There is more in the Bible about money than there is about heaven and hell all put together. God knows it's where we get stuck. And you'll stand before God someday to give an account of what you did with all that he put into your hands. You know, you can waste it, you can keep it, you can use it on yourself, you can invest it wisely, and you will do something. And what you do ultimately shows where's your heart and who's in charge in your heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So God is not anti-rich. He's not just pro-poor. He's pro-everybody. And God is not anti-rich. He's anti-cheat. He's anti-abuse. And poverty, on the other hand, is not, a pi is not piety. Just because you're poor doesn't mean you're more spiritual or more godly. Poverty might cause piety, might cause you to be on your knees sooner saying, God, help me. I just need your help. But just because somebody's poor doesn't mean God loves them more or they love God any more than you do. So God worked through a lot of people in the Bible who were very, very wealthy. Job, David, Solomon, all probably were the very richest person when they were alive in the whole world. Abraham was able to raise, in a moment of crisis, 318 uh, soldiers to be in his army. Joseph of Arimathea, who was alive when Jesus was, was a man of extreme wealth and influence. He was able to walk into Pilate's presence on the Pilate's most difficult day and, and, and convince him to give the body of Jesus to Joseph. You couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. We can walk into the governor's office and say, hey, do this for me today and have it happen. Right, So he had uh, influence, and he placed Jesus' body in his own uh, garden tomb. And so we can see in the Bible, God loves everybody, the poor, the rich, and everybody in between. But he really gets his dander up when people are misusing wealth or abusing others in the process. And James has some pretty sharp words. I'm trying to get you ready, especially for rich people. And in James' day, there virtually was no middle class. There was the rich, and there was the poor, and... Um, and there was hardly anybody in between. And James is talking to the rich ones. You think, oh, then I'm off the hook. Well, the rich ones included anybody who owned a house or uh, transportation, like if you own a car, or anybody with more than a set, one set of clothing. In other words, all of us here are in the rich group. He's talking to us. And so here's what it says in James 5. I've tried to warn you. Are you ready? It says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts." You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James goes, whoa, rich people. Stop doing these things that are going to have God angry with you. Number one, you hoarded instead of sharing. 
I mean, in James' day, you saved your wealth either in gold and silver, or you purchased clothing, or you collected a lot, you stockpiled food. So look what he says, your riches have rotted, probably the food, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. I mean, Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 12 about a rich farmer who had a bumper crop one year, and he put all the grain in his barn and the grain in his barn, and pretty soon his barn was full, filled up the next barn, the next one, the next one. Pretty soon all of his barns were full. He still had grain that he didn't know where to put, and he says, what should I do? Now, at that point, he should have said, you know, I belong to God, and everything that I have has come from the hand of God, and I'm not the owner of any of this. I'm the manager. What would God want me to do with God's resources that he's placed in my hands? He should have had some thought to say, God has given me so much extra wealth. I should give some of it away to help somebody who's less fortunate. I bet there's people standing outside my farm gates that are hungry. I could help them. But instead of doing that, here was his solution. Ah, let me get more security for me. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. I'm going to hoard it. I'm going to pile it up. There wasn't one thought of helping anybody else. It was all about him. You know what God's answer was? You fool. Tonight your soul will be required of you. God says, come on, come talk to me. You just don't get it. Do you know in 2011, <laughs> less than a mile from right here, there was a house fire. And the people who lived there, um, she was a historian and had collected gobs of documents. Had so many documents that when this fire started in their kitchen, there were stacks and stacks and stacks of of, of people. She, it was really hoarding. The firemen, she was not able to get out the back door, which was the only way out to get away from the fire. And the firemen were not able to get in in time to save her life or her husband's. See, your hoarding can kill you, is what it says here. It says it will eat your flesh like fire. Don't hoard. Number two, he says, besides hoarding, you've cheated. Instead of being fair with your employees, he says, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud. You went down and you found these people across the street from Costco or somewhere who said they needed some work, and you needed some work done, and you hired them, and at the end of the day, you said, huh, you didn't work hard enough, I'm not going to pay you. You got the work done, but you sent them home empty-handed. It says, they're crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Hosts, do you think it matters to God how you got your wealth? It sure does. So if you got your wealth by defrauding other people and not paying bills that you should have paid, God will be after you about it. James says, look, you hired people, then you didn't pay them, you cheated them, and God has heard their, heard their cry. Do you think it will go well for you when you stand before God? Number three, he says, you self-indulged. You focused only on yourself. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, you know, before Thanksgiving every year, turkey farmers, if they're smart, would fatten up their turkeys, feed them st extra stuff that gets them extra big, and then they're sold by the pound, and they make extra money. And, uh, of course, they're going to start with the largest ones first, right, and get them ready, the fattened ones. And he says, you have fattened your own hearts in the day of slaughter. Do you think it matters to God how we spend our money? Well, it sure does. When we make more money, the temptation is to spend more on ourselves. Oh, I've deserved it. I've deprived myself for so long. And I just need more. And we justify our selfishness. Just because you can't afford it doesn't mean that you should. 
I mean, we even have whole programs on TV of, of watching rich people and their excesses. Whoever watches a show, Lifestyles of the Poor and Godly? Nobody. Even though it's the right thing. I mean, if you belong to God and God has blessed you with more, maybe it's time to ask, God, you gave me extra. For what reason? All my needs were being met. You gave me extra. Why did you give me the extra? Maybe God wants to use you as a conduit of his blessings to some important situation. How do you use over-the-top gifts to their maximum potential? It's worth struggling with that. You don't hoard it. You don't steal it. You don't waste it. And number four, he says, you've abused your power and influence that comes from wealth. As people get wealthier and they, they get more influential, that can sometimes work against them. He says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't resist you. There's the inference here that the rich person has gone to the judge and has bribed the judge in private to say, when you, this case is tried tomorrow, if you rule in my favor, look, this is yours. When we went to Africa, we were in Nigeria, and my dad went to the DMV to get a driver's license because it's the right thing to do. There's no highway patrol, you understand. In fact, you had your vehicles inspected one day a year, and you could rent things for that day if you needed, like lights or brakes or, or other things that you might need on a vehicle, okay? And uh, no, I'm serious. That wasn't a joke, okay? And, and so my dad goes to get a license, and the guy behind the counter goes, Ah, oh, my head is hot. My dad goes, well, I'll come back sooner tomorrow when it's not quite so hot. What time do you open? He says, oh, at 9 o'clock. He gets there at 9 o'clock the next day. Oh, he says, we are so busy. My dad refused to pay the bribe. I mean, we're more sophisticated how we do it in America, but basically they weren't going to do anything for him unless he paid under the table. And so he just kept coming back, you know, a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth time. And... Um, I don't know what they were thinking since he drove away from the DMV without a driver's license, but it didn't seem to bother anybody. But it took him 12 trips to the DMV to get a license until they finally said he is such an irritant, he doesn't give us a bribe, he keeps coming back, let's just give it to him to get rid of him. He's saying you've abused your power and influence that comes with wealth. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person who was probably poorer than you and, and didn't pay off the, uh, the, the judge. And... Uh, so you got a ruling in your favor that was disastrous and unfair to your opponent. So you won huh, that round. What about when you both are standing before God, who is righteous, who doesn't forget, who can't be bought, whose anger boils over such unrighteousness, who doesn't just give you the benefit of the doubt and let it slide? How do you think it's going to go then? James says, get it right while you have time. He says, what you've trusted won't last. The riches you've collected are going to testify against you. You've cheated. You failed to be honest. You, you've wasted the resources only on yourself. And please note, he says, God is watching, and you will give an account. Verse 1, come, you rich, weep and howl. You don't just start by howling. You start by weeping and, and you know, crying. And then howling, I think, is about the you know, sixth level where you, you've really got it worked up, where you're, you're, you are just overtaken with your grief. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon on you. Verse 3, your gold and silver corroded, their corrosion will be evidence against you. God has collecting evidence, and you will be called to give an answer. 
Verse 4, the wages of the laborers you have defrauded. Their cry has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You're going to give an account for your life to God. He's not going to remain silent forever. He's not going to remain passive forever. He is being patient so that you have time to respond to his word. Just because he hasn't punished you yet, don't, don't think that you're off the hook. He's saying, read my word. Listen to my spirit nudging you voluntarily the right direction because a day is coming. He tells us in Romans 14, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now you can fool me a lot of the time. You can fool some people all the time. You will never fool God any of the time. So don't try. If that's how you think you're going to get through, you don't stand a chance. You, you just got to come clean with him and you got to be ready for this moment. So I want to take James, uh, kind of his negative approach to us and kind of turn the coin over and let's look at the other side of each of these. Okay, he says, don't hoard. Instead, grow savings wisely. It says in Proverbs 6, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and she gathers her food in harvest. Do you know, I went and I Googled this. I checked savings in America and it said millennials last year saved negative 2%. 2 and 35 to 40-year-olds saved 2.6%. And 45 to 54-year-olds saved 5.7%. And anybody older than that is considered old, 55 and older, or save 13%. Now, that's pretty little. Why? Why so little? Because we've got to have it now. We think of instant gratification. And in fact, I mean, we think for most families in America, 100% is not enough. Well, I had a wiser, older, rich guy that I was talking on this topic who helped me. He said, here's how I got rich. I memorized these four words. I can't afford it. I can't afford it. I can't afford it. So you tell yourself that enough times, you, you learn to live with contentment. You be content with what you have. Well, why do the people of the world save anything? For security. They think by having a, a, a bigger account, they'll have more reserve. So when tough times come, they can uh, cover expenses, um, maybe medical bills, whatever it is. But if you're, if you're just saving for security, enough is never enough. It will never be enough. In fact, 1979 or 1980, I forget, somewhere in that window, I invested in some silver. It was $4 an ounce. And within a month, it went up to $8 an ounce. I was thrilled. I had doubled my investment, and I sold. And silver went on up to $38 an ounce. I don't know. Some of you might remember that. And now I'm kicking myself. I didn't feel quite as smart. But, um, you know, the Hunt brothers, then the government changed the rules, and the price came crashing back down. And in that same window, the Hunt brothers lost $4 billion, with a B, billion dollars. And in 1986, Time Magazine was doing an article on Bunker Hunt, who said he had lost over a million dollars himself. And here was his quote. He said, well, you know, a billion dollars ain't what it used to be. So if you're stacking up money to say, oh, boy, this is my security. My security is in my bank account. I got to tell you, you're not secure yet. 
you're not there because you can never have enough to say I'm completely secure from everything that's coming. Our security as believers is not in our accounts. Our security is in the account, in the fact that we have Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our guide, as our friend, as our protector. There's no absolute security except in Jesus Christ. Paul said, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. And you know, Paul's retirement was completely paid for. He spent the entire time in prison. I'm not suggesting you try that as a plan, but uh, that was God's plan for him. See, the people of Christ, why do we save? Not for security. We save for good stewardship. Because if you're saving, then you're going to have a plan rather than just impulse buying. I got to have that. I got to have that. I got to have that. I got it right here in my pocket, or I've got it here on a card. And a young person came in. She's never going to be the top of her class. But she said, they said, I'm having a problem with money, but look, I got blank checks right here. Said, well, let's start at the beginning. We save to have some extra so that when somebody comes along and has a need, you don't have to wonder, hmm, boy, wonder where that would come from. You can say, God put some of his money in my pockets and you have a need, and I can match that. I can take care of that. I can help. And then we also save because you get money working for you rather than you working for it. This means that you need to live on less than you make which most people in this country don't understand that. But John D. Rockefeller was big on this. He had a 10-10-80 plan. He said, you save 10%, you tithe 10%, and you live on 80%. And if you think about it, if you've given your heart to Jesus, then all you have belongs to Him. You're not your own, the Bible says. You are bought with a price. So you're no longer the owner of anything. You are the manager. So don't be a manager who's acting like an owner. So I had some savings together, and I decided it's time to start making an investment. And so I went to an investment firm, and I said, here, take my precious money and invest it for me. And I came back out to them a month later. I said, how's my investment doing? And they said, oh, well, we're keeping it liquid right now. I said, what does that mean? They said, it's all still in cash. We haven't bought any stocks or any... Any investment tools yet? I said, well, I thought you were an investment firm, not a liquid firm. Which kind of seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Well, they said, yeah, but the market timing isn't right. So, I, you know, I trusted them for a little while. But uh, I'm sure they had good reasons. But think about this. God has placed some of his resources in your hands. There's never going to be a perfect time. But you're a manager. And God's calling on you to invest on, on his behalf. Do you want to get to him someday and to say, you know, God, all the resources you give me, I, I, I just kept them liquid. I never invested them. I didn't want to take any risk. Didn't want to lose anything. So here's what you gave me to start. Do you think God will be pleased? Because if so, I mean, you need to read the parables of Jesus where there's one where he gave five talents to one guy and three to another and one to one. And the five and three went out and doubled theirs and they took risk. And the one just said, oh, I better not risk it. He's a tough master. He's going to want something back. I better just bury the one little talent and give it back to him at the end. The master was not pleased. He was not pleased. It would have been better to come in and say, you know, you gave me one, and I tried to invest it, and I really bombed, and I have nothing to show for it, than to say, I didn't do what you wanted me to do. I knew you had certain things you wanted me to invest in, but I never got around to it. I just hoarded it. Well, you know, the hoarded stuff that they were talking about was, you know, the, the thing about it, the clothes you're wearing today and the, your favorite clothes that you wear regularly, though they're not moth-eaten. 
The moth-eaten clothes that you come across are the fancy ones that you've put in bags and put in closets or put in boxes in the garage, the ones that you've just kind of hoarded. The food that, that, that spoils in your fridge isn't your favorites. Those get eaten <laughs> before the day's out. The ones that spoil the ones that you know you should eat or somebody thought you should have or, or the ones that you go, I'll get around to, and they spoil and go out of date because they're, they're not your favorites. You just kind of hoarded them. And what you accumulate will deteriorate. It does. It's the second law of thermodynamics, and it keeps working. What we accumulate will deteriorate. And God doesn't want to give us wealth just for the sake of us getting rich. God wants us to put it in circulation. Because our security is not in our stuff. It's not in our accounts. It's in Jesus Christ. So let's get his resources invested in other people's lives to make a difference for eternity. Number two, don't cheat. Work honest labor to grow your wealth. Proverbs 13, 11 says, Wealth gained hastily, that is, by fraud, will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. I actually had somebody come to me and say, I'm sure they're not here. Pastor, pray that I win the lottery. Because if I do, I'll pay for the whole church project. If it's a big enough winning. Well, I didn't say everything that went through my head. If God wanted us to win the lottery to pay for our project, we could do it without buying a ticket, don't you think? I mean, if that's what God wanted. If God wanted to do the project without you and without me, he could do that. He, we could, he could snap his fingers and the whole thing would be finished. The point is he wants to include you as a partner. He wants to include me as a partner. He wants us to be involved. He wants us to participate. He wants us to have skin in the game. He wants us to take risk. He wants us to have sacrifice. He wants to grow in us and in our hearts godliness. He wants us thinking about him and talking to him and praying for him and asking for his help and participating with him. It costs something to love. It costs something if you're going to sacrifice. So a gambling or a get-rich-quick scheme isn't the right way to accumulate wealth. The Bible teaches the value of honest, hard work. I mean, numerous places in the Bible, God has approved of work as a way to reach wealth. In fact, we kind of take it to an extreme, don't we? How you doing? Oh, good. I'm really, really busy. And we never say, well, then how's your Sabbath? We end up saying, oh, that's good. That's good. And we applaud that they're working hard or overworking. Well, are there limits to hard work? Well, it shouldn't hurt your health. I mean, are you killing yourself with your work? It shouldn't hurt your family. I mean, think about it, parents. The clock is running. There's no time out. It shouldn't hurt your devotion to Jesus Christ. Have you found that as you've prospered, that you end up spending less time on your knees saying, God, help me, God, help me, and more time thinking, wow, I made it on my own. I did this all myself. And you spent less time talking to God, less time reading his word, less time in prayer. The Bible has warnings in numerous places. When you reach a place of, of plenty in your life, do not forget the Lord. There's a danger of thinking, ah, oh, I don't need him now. Things are going pretty good. So don't cheat. He says, work hard. Number three, don't self-indulge. Spend wisely, which would mean you need to budget. I mean, spending wisely means you've done some pre-planning and figured out how much should be spent where and when. That's called a budget. A budget is planned spending. It's not just saying, hey, it's payday today. I've got my check in my hand. Let's go out and splurge. 
Last big downturn we had, I took a guy out to lunch, and we're riding in his, what I thought was a brand new Hummer. Maybe it was about three months old. And he says, you know, things have gone really bad. He said, and when you go from living on half a million dollars a year to nothing overnight, it can really hurt. Wow. I said, wow. I don't think the problem was how much he had been making. The fact that he was spending as much as he was making at $500,000 a year, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're making $5 a year, $50,000 a year, $5 million a year. If you're spending more than you're making, you're going backwards. You're not being responsible. And about half the families in America are in that category that they spent more than they made last year. We make enough money. That's not the problem. We just don't spend wisely and people don't set a budget. That's where I thank God for our finance committee. They set a budget. They anguish over it. They pray over it. They work hard to set the budget and to get it to the right place. Then every month we talk about how are we doing for the, on the budget compared to where we are and where, where are those two together and where are they off and what do we need to do to make uh, corrections, big or small? And how do we stay on track? It's a tough job, but it's being done well uh, by our team. And it's not always pleasant or fun, but that's how you stay on track to not self-indulge, but to spend wisely, to budget. Number four, don't abuse your power influence. Use your influence to give generously to causes you believe grow God's kingdom. Jesus said it this way, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break through and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How do you store your treasure up in heaven? You know, you're not going to take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You know how you do that? You invest in the lives of people who are going to be there. You invest in other people's lives and help them find Jesus. I mean, who's going to be in heaven because of your generosity? So how do you take all this stuff that we've been talking about and to say, okay, what do I do with it? It's not like anybody's going to come pounding on your door saying, hey, you heard that sermon. What'd you do with it? But Jesus told a story in Luke 16, <laughs> a story we've called the shrewd manager. It starts like this. There was a rich man who had a manager. And his charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is it I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. In other words, get the books ready, you're fired. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my manager, master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I don't know why those were the only options, but he said, I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said, cut the bill in half, pay it today and you're done. He then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill, pay 80% of it and you're done. Now he's in a crisis. He's being fired. So he has some quick decisions to make. Time is short. He's the manager. He says, how do I ingratiate myself with these people? And he says, you know, I've been taking uh, my master to the cleaners anyway. And uh, so I'm going to just keep doing that. So the people think of him as a very generous man, but they're, they're, they're very nice to me because I, I gave him a good deal. Jesus calls him the hero of the story, not because he was a cheat. He was a cheat. Jesus called him a hero of the story because he recognized that he had screwed up and that he had short time to make corrections and he did what he could while he could. 
His master thought that was pretty smart. It says the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I think Jesus is in tongue and cheek on that last verse because it doesn't work. You can't buy your way into heaven. You have to get right with God just by bringing Him your heart. That's the place to start. And Jesus goes on to explain, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, in the wealth of this world, in the monopoly money that you've been dealing with in your dealings, who will entrust you true riches? God's saying, I'm watching how you're playing the game in the world to see if I'm going to give my true riches and my spiritual richness to you. So we need to love and serve God with our hearts and with our wealth and with our all. And James is talking to the rich people who have a wealth of problems because we need to know whose money it really is. And we need to know what the resources are really for. And we need to know how to use them in the way that, that God tells us. And we want to hear him say, well done. You know, the starting point, if you go, how do I get this right? The starting point to be set free is to put Jesus Christ in charge in your heart. Start in your heart to say, God, I'm going to give you my heart. And then listen for his voice. And he'll tell you what to do if your heart's in the right place. He says, God, I want you to be number one in my heart and in my finances and in my calendar and in my family and in my whole life. You'll never be sorry. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for James and for his willingness to speak directly to people who really needed it. We need it. So I pray that each person applies this to themselves, that they really will listen for your voice and say, what changes do I need to make to follow Jesus more closely? And we thank you that you give us the power to live as sons and daughters of God in this world. Amen.